Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business, and thought leaders. Today, we're really pleased to have a good friend from Down Under, one of Australia's leading foreign policy thought leaders, Dr. Michael Fullilove. Michael currently serves as the executive director of the Lowy Institute, the leading Australian think tank based in Sydney, Australia. Michael has also worked as a lawyer and consultant in Australia and notably served as an advisor to Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating from 1995 to 1996. He has written widely on Australian foreign policy for publications such as the New York Times, the Financial Times, and Foreign Policy Magazine, Michael is also a prolific author on global history and Australia's role in the modern world order. I'll also say Michael's written a fantastic book on Roosevelt's envoys that were used uh, before the onset of the First World War. We'll we'll plug that in a moment. So welcome, Michael. It's great to have you. Hello, both. Nice to be here. Great. So, So you're here. It's Australia Week. Every can't walk around the corner without... Someone saying hello, mate, or mateship. It feels or, good, doesn't it? It does. It does feel good. It's, you guys are sunny and happy, and, and and welcome to Washington. Let's see if we can bring you down. So, so tell us a little bit about what's going on. Uh, the prime minister's here. Uh-huh. Uh, Morrison, uh, big deal. Uh, lots of hoopla of the celebrating the U.S.-Australian relationship. Where is the U.S.-Australian relationship right now? How are Australians thinking about the United States uh, in the current set of circumstances? Well, a lot of hoopla indeed. I think the Prime Minister has had a state dinner at the White House, which is only the the, the second state dinner that the, the President Trump has hosted. Mm. It's the first state dinner that an Australian Prime Minister's um, enjoyed for a very long time. There's a lot of reporting in the US, I see, that that Mr Morrison is, is a mini-Trump. Mm. Uh, in fact, I think they're, they're very different characters. Mr Morrison is a devout churchgoer. He's a lifelong politician. He's an everyman figure. So they're very different characters. But I think Mr. Trump... What about on the issues though, Michael? I I, I agree. So the president would disagree. President Trump would say he's a deeply, profoundly religious person. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but if you could, like, take us through the issues. What makes them so different? Well... I think that Mr. Morrison is a much more centrist figure than President Trump. I think there are similarities, certainly, and he, Mr. Morrison has a background, for example, as a coal fancier. Uh, you know, he famously took a lump of coal into the Australian Parliament and said to other parliamentarians, you don't have to be afraid of this. He was tough on immigration, that's, that's for sure. But I think in other areas, he's a sort of more mainstream centrist conservative. But he is a conservative, and so I think he appeals to President Trump. He, he likes the president and he's been portrayed, as I said, in the American media as, as something of a Trump, Trump-like figure. And I think that flatters and pleases the president. So, so I think President Trump is predisposed to like him and they're, they're likely to have a, a good relationship. So I, I'm not sure I can quote yesterday from Brookings, I know mm-hmm. that was off the record, but in our conversation, one of the things that you said that I thought was fascinating is that one of the differences is that Morrison and his team actually like what the United States stood for the last 70 years. Uh, Active support for Mm. a security environment, the operating system of Asia, pro-trade. And those are the biggest areas of differences because Trump would be quite critical of that previous approach. Well, and I agree with that. It's not even just Morrison and his team. I think in general, 
Australia's international values are quite different from some of President Trump's international values. So President Trump doesn't like the model of American leadership and cooperation, but Australia has benefited and we've prospered under that. President Trump is sceptical of free trade, but we're a a trading nation. President Trump is sceptical of alliances, but we're alliance believers. President Trump seems to like autocrats and strongmen, but we are a, an old democracy and a free society. So there are these sorts of big differences between Australian values and some of President Trump's values, and that's reflected in the polling, I should say. So only one out of four Australians trust President Trump. Mm. Uh, two-thirds of Australians say that he's weakened the alliance. And yet, and yet, and here we come back to the state visit, the alliance matters to us. We have equities to protect. Having a personal relationship with the President of the United States matters, even where he doesn't completely align with your values. And so so Prime Minister Morrison is taking advantage of these similarities I talked to earlier to try to to forge a useful and good relationship at the summit. Yeah, it's interesting. As I hear you talk, there's so many parallels to what's happening with Prime Minister Modi and his visit. Mm -hmm. He's, He's here this weekend and, and people are saying, well, you know, Trump and Modi are getting together and, and you know, they don't have a lot in common and I, or, or they actually, you know, maybe share more in common than people would like, but it's good for the country. It's good for the bilateral relationship. I'm happy that they're getting together. I want to go back to Australian politics though for a second, yeah. because for those people who don't follow it closely enough, it seems like you've had a lot of tumult the last few years. And maybe you could just give people a sense of what's going on. And also this kind of US-Australia relationship didn't start out so strong in the first few months of the Trump presidency. Mm. Maybe you could remind people what happened and how, how did you recover from that? Well, I guess to start with that, yeah, the last prime minister, you remember the the relationship between Prime Minister Turnbull and President Trump started with this infamous phone call. I noticed the presidential phone calls are back in the media again at the the moment. Well, this was another controversial one because the transcript was leaked to the Washington Post. It was described as a hostile and charged phone call and they struggled to write it. And it took the deep state really to wrap its arms around the relationship and say, look, you've you know, so you're talking about the, the other supporters in Congress and in the government and stuff. Yeah, yeah we're very pro-deep state down, <laughs> down under. Uh, they, they had to come out and wrap their arms around and say, look, if you can't get on with the Australians, who are you going to be able to get on with? Right. So it took a lot of effort to get them back on the same page. And I'm sure that this is part of the reason why President Trump has extended this invitation to Morrison to show, no, I can get on with Australian prime ministers. I can get on with with foreign leaders. And I might say, if Morrison succeeds in, in establishing a good relationship with President Trump, which I think is good for Australia, I hope that he doesn't limit it to just having a nice relationship with President Trump. I hope that over time, he uses that platform of being one of the few democratic leaders, perhaps, who has the inside running with the president to try to influence him in the directions of some of those foreign policy values I mentioned earlier. Mm. In terms of Australian politics, we have been through a really awful period. And And to give you a bit of context, from 1983 to 2007, we had only two governments. For a quarter of a century, we had two governments, three prime ministers, 
the, the last one of whom I worked for, Mr Keating. And in that period, those governments were highly successful administrations, lots of innovation on domestic policy, on international policy, and Australians were used to very stable, effective government. And since 2007, we've had, you know, six or seven prime ministers, depending on how you count them. And we have, in effect, this has been, you know, just as the United States has had its unexpected results and it's it's been roiled by all these sorts of new tensions and issues, just as in Britain and across the Western world, you could argue that, that Australia has seen the same thing within the parliamentary system. Now, what happened in May is that Morrison won an unexpected surprise victory against Labor who was expected to win that election. Right. And I have a feeling, I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that he's going to put an end to this period of churn because it just feels to me like Australians are over it. All the former prime ministers who had previously been sitting in the parliament are now out. So uh, Morrison has an opportunity to put that period behind him. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think his predecessors have laboured under their their predecessors still sitting in the parliament, still causing trouble. And that, that sort of period is over. So who's he most like in terms of if you had to liken him to a previous... Australian Prime Minister who perhaps over-exceeded what was expected? Well, he models himself on John Howard yeah. and and he explicitly does so and, in fact, is bringing back some old Howard advisors. He's getting the band back together. And so he's seeking to establish that sort of long-term effective centre-right government. Now, in order to do that, he has to, he has to do a bit of repositioning himself, I think, because... You know, for example, on an issue like climate and energy, that was an issue that really crippled Australian politics over the last 10 years. It really drove the the coalition parties out to the extreme right. I think there's an opportunity. If Mr Morrison wants to be Howard-esque, he can reposition his government a little bit to the centre and and reach out to some of those other figures in the centre and say, look, we're not just a party of of the extreme right, we're a party of the centre. That's the challenge for him. Yeah, so can we talk about some of those issues that have created that churn? And you mentioned uh, climate as one of them, uh, immigration, probably another Australian kind of foreign policy. And maybe we can tackle some of those in, in the course of this conversation. But today is one of those days where climate was at the forefront. You had hundreds of thousands of people out in the street in yep. Melbourne and Sydney yes. today out kind of demonstrating for a cleaner future, less coal so how does how do you, Australians reconcile that with the direction that maybe this prime minister is going? How how is the climate set of issues playing out politically? Well, climate is such an interesting issue because in it's a wicked public policy problem, and in that period of stable government that I mentioned, it's exactly the sort of problem that Australian governments would have dealt with because we we had a, re, a track record on a range of different issues as we were discussing the other day from universal health care to income contingent higher education loans to 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 gun laws for that matter of coming up with very smart solutions to complicated problems and we were kind of on our way to solving you know to addressing some of these climate issues in that way and in fact John Howard campaigned in 2007 on an emissions trading scheme mm. 
But in the end, the political system failed to provide an answer to climate, and it was really driven, to be honest, by party room politics in the centre-right party, and it was driven by climate sceptics in that party who were uncomfortable with Australian governments taking forward-leaning action on it. Mm. However, this is the important point, and this comes back to your point about the climate strike and the marches that were in Sydney and Melbourne. Right. Australians want the Australian government to do something on climate. So in the Lowy Institute poll this year, the leading tracking survey of Australian public opinion, Australians identified climate change as the leading international threat to our country above the rise of China, above terrorism, above all those sorts of things. Climate change was the number one issue. Over the last six or seven years, every year, the, num- the percentage of Australians who want us to, who see climate as a pressing threat and want us to take action to address it has climbed. Mm. So Australians actually want action on climate and not just the kids and not just those on the left because it's happening. It's real. Yeah. It's hotter. It's drier. We're getting more extreme weather events and that is starting to seep into politics. And so that's why I said earlier that if if Mr Morrison is really smart, if he wants to be a long-term government, he doesn't want to be captured by those on the extreme right. He wants to come over to the centre and say, we can do some sensible reform. Can I I also just ask you about immigration as well and whether the debates that you're having on immigration mirror anything that we're having or anything that Europe is having on immigration or is it, is it very, you know, from those, those of us from the outside, we go to Australia and and we think this is the incredible melting pot of Asia. Um, But I know it's a lot more complicated and and very tense. Where, Where are things at with immigration? Well, Australians tend to still be pro-immigration as well as pro-free trade and pro-globalisation, but they they don't like irregular arrivals. And Mr Morrison made his name as the immigration minister in stopping the boats mm. and stopping the, the boatloads of illegal migrants who are coming from Southeast Asia and the, from the Pacific. But I think it's important to, to say that Australia still has one of the largest legal immigration programs in the world, much larger per capita than the United States, and Australians still believe in immigration. Now, there's a wrinkle to this, and it's something that's very much in the news at at the moment, and that is the whole question of China. Because we have, for for many years, since the gold rushes and even before the gold rushes, we've had wonderful Chinese-Australian citizens who've contributed an enormous amount to our country. But obviously, with the rise of China, with the spectre of Chinese interference operations in our country, with with all these stories that are in the news every day, this this question of the Chinese diaspora in Australia is one that is becoming really front page news. And we have to be careful as a country that we address the legitimate threat from the PRC, but we distinguish that from Chinese culture and Chinese Australians, which is a wonderful source of strength for us. I think that's incredibly well said, Michael, and we're struggling with some of the same things here. And remember, in our history, we have, I, I grew up in California, right down the street from me when I was a kid, I remember was an old barracks that was used during the Second World War. It's now been torn up, but it was an internment camp mm-hmm. where Japanese Americans were kept, loyal Americans were mm-hmm. kept uh, during the course of the Second World War. And I think one of the reasons that people are anxious about the debate about China, first of all, our domestic politics are fractured right now, and everything is you know kind of bouncing around like a 
you know, cue ball on a pool table. Mm. It's, you know, refracting in ways that are unpredictable. So people worry that maybe the maturity of that's necessary for a big debate about where the United States goes in the world is absent. But secondly, we have this experience, and we we have been known to overreact, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of anxiety about this. And like the difference between the Soviet Union during the Cold War and China mm. in this period, many of the people are dominant strategists in the 40s and 50s, were people that basically escaped Europe in front of Soviet tanks, mm. and there there was no love lost for mm-hmm. Russia, its culture, its food, none of that stuff, mm. right? But most of the people that began to think about China in the 70s and 80s and the early generation of academics, to be honest, are are attracted to the culture, mm-hmm. to the language, to the cuisine, everything. And so there is some worry about it. We've watched with interest about what's happened in the debate on China in Australia. Uh, and I, it seems to me that first of all, the debate has advanced some and, and it's more balanced. But at the same time, it, it feels, at least for, as an outsider's perspective, that views have hardened somewhat. That, mm. you know, in the past, maybe a little bit of Australian romanticism about China, now probably a greater sense that, you know, big power politics are, are in play in, in a way that, that Australia has to protect its interests. Where, where are you in that, Michael? I think that's I think that's very well said. I think that the, the days of romanticism about about China are behind us, and it is striking to me that China is the biggest news story in Australia at the moment. And every day there's one or two front page stories about China in the Australian press. Whether it's that's fascinating Australians being uh, detained, Australians of Chinese ethnicity being detained in China. Mm. Whether it's the Huawei decision, because we made that very early decision um, not to allow Huawei to bid on the 5G network, uh, whether it's political interference, whether it's political donations, whether it's Chinese students and they're on campus and their relationship to the, the Chinese embassies and consulates, whether it's Australian iron ore exports, it's it's everywhere. It is dominating our politics. And it's it's a tough issue for us because as as you know, China is our leading trading partner last in in June, for example, 40% of our exports went to China. That's up from 30% of our exports only three years ago and 20% of our exports 10 years ago. Wow. 40% of our exports went to China. It's absolutely essential to our our economy. And yet China, China is a peer competitor of our great security ally. It's a country that increasingly wants to be the dominant power in Asia. It's a country that wants to occupy as much space as it can in our region. It's spreading its influence in in the South Pacific, where the, where, where the leading power. And we obviously want to preserve our freedom of movement. We want to preserve our own institutions, protect our own democracy, and preserve our freedom of movement in the region, as indeed most Asian countries do. So squaring these, squaring these things is not easy, but the debate is, I think, is becoming more mature. The romanticism is gone and it's toughening up, I think. Yeah, I want to I stay on these economic connections, if you don't mind, mm. the 40% of your exports, but also I assume there's a significant amount of FDI coming in from, from China as well into, into Australia. There must be this incredible interdependence. And how has that tempered some of the hardliners, how has that tempered the rhetoric? Because as you talk to different 
folks in Asia, they are wondering whether Australia is really up for this kind of fight, uh, you know, as you said, for all mm. the things that matter strategically because mm. of the economic handcuffs that you feel. Mm. Well, I'll give you an anecdote. A couple of years ago, we brought, uh, the Lowe Institute brought David Ignatius out to Australia. And I took David down to Canberra and he had a terrific briefing from from the deep state, if you like, from the intelligence agencies and the defence guys, and they gave and they gave him a really terrific, hard, tough-minded briefing, series of briefings on China. And then the next night, I hosted a dinner party in or a dinner in Can in Melbourne, I should say, for leading CEOs. And these the CEOs were were crawling over the table basically to 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 criticise the United States and to and to whack Ignatius around the head and say, why is our foreign policy diverging from our economic policy and why are we still allied with the United States? And I recall that David wrote a a, a column on it that I think he might have called a tale of two dinners or something like yeah. that. You know, there are we have these two debates. In Australia, and you can talk to business leaders, especially businesses that are selling, you know, resources predominantly up into China. Right. You can talk to presidents of universities who are increasingly taking on very large numbers of of students from the PRC, and and they will give you one story, and then you'll talk to the colleagues in Canberra and my colleagues at the Lowy Institute, and they'll give you a different view. So the challenge at the moment is to merge these two debates so that we can have a balanced debate one that respects that we have interests on both sides so that we can start to identify where the interests of China and Australia overlap so that we can be ambitious on that front, but also where they diverge so we can be clear about that in in some respects our paths will diverge from that of China. That's a nice summary, Michael. And David is a good friend of Rich and mine and has been a guest on our podcast and speaks very fondly of that particular visit. I must say that anecdote you tell is very similar to my own experience, both visiting Australia as a government official, but also most recently when I when I had the uh, honor and pleasure of being a Loy Fellow and spending quite a bit of time with you down there, I found that in most of the meetings with senior Australians, and this is now a couple of years ago, it's pretty well disguised, but pretty very. I mean, but clear nevertheless for someone who's got even a little bit of kind of understanding is that that many senior Australians believe that they know a lot more about China than we do. And that if you'd only, they'll speak quietly and carefully listen to us about stuff. But I think there's a tendency to underestimate the depth of our own knowledge, U.S. knowledge Mm. and engagement with China across the board. And, you know, I found most Australians in some way want to help mediate the relationship between Beijing Mm. and Washington Mm. and, you know. Great powers love it when medium, middle powers try to be a bridge. They love that. Well, no, you got to be polite about it, but then (laughs) excuse yourself from that lunch. But anyway, so how how do you see that? And do, do you think there is a greater sense now that maybe we didn't understand China as well a couple of years ago or it doesn't play out that way? Or, or is it, or is it China has changed, has grown and more powerful, right? I mean, China's behaviour has changed very significantly since the rise of Xi Jinping, and and I think most China analysts got Xi wrong, and they thought that he would continue to hide the light under the bushel, and actually, from the very get go, he had no interest in that, and he's pursued a, a, a policy really on all fronts that seeks to spread the the ink patch and. 
whether that's in the waters around its coasts, whether it's the way it deals with the rest of the world, whether it's the way that it deals with the United States. That's not to say that it's all caused by by China. And in fact, I, I think I said to you that with the exception of some analysts, and Kurt, you're one of them, I do find that the hardening consensus in Washington is in danger of really getting too hard. You know, there's a, you know, as I, as I said the other day, you remember the Spinal Tap movie where they turn the amp up <laughs> to 11. Right. <laughs> I do feel sometimes when I come to Washington, wow, yeah. the amp is really at 11. What are you, where are you going to, where are you going to go next? Um, so I think there is a, there is a power element here where it is not, it, we, we all know it's not easy for, for established powers and rising powers to, to form a sort of a modus vivendi. So I think it's a combination of, the structural elements of the relationship, but also the sort of some of the bellicosity of PRC policy under Xi Jinping. It's certainly being being felt in the Australian public debate. And I'll give you a couple of facts. In this year's Lowy Institute poll, only 32% of Australians say they trust China to act responsibly in the world. That is a 20% drop in a single year. Wow. Three quarters of Australians say Australia is too economically dependent on China. So the Australian debate is in the middle of a, a big turn. I just want to ask a more personal question, if I can, Michael. So, you know, Rich and I have spent a lot of our careers in Washington. You mm. can't throw a stone and not hit a think tank in Washington. We have mm. hundreds of them and, you know, lots of different, lots of proliferation and, you know, but but it's different in Australia. There are only a couple. You lead the leading one. But I'm curious, how do Australians think of think tanks? How do they think about them? How does the government relate to you and the opposition? Like, like, do they see this as a place that, you know, they can use as a venue to get ideas out? Do they worry that you're going to put pieces out that contradict? How does the Lowy Institute and how do you see that role? And has Australia's view of your think tank and think tanks generally mm. evolved over time? Because I found when I was there that this notion of kind of, outside public policy or foreign policy advisors was a little bit alien. Mm. And and if you weren't in government, then, you know, you're in business and mm. there isn't really much between. Mm. I think it's changed and, and the Lowy Institute has helped to make the change. And in a way, we've made the market of think tanks in Australia. When the Institute was set up in 2003, there was not much activity on that front. And as you say, you're either in government or maybe you're an academic with some leather patches on your on your elbows, mm -hmm. or you're a journalist. But we really helped to create, I think, really to make the argument that no, there is a place for institutions that sit between knowledge and power, mm. that are staffed by people who have experience in government, but also people who are scholars and, and who have time and space to think about these big issues. And we find that that government's interested and you're you're almost you're also starting to get a little bit of the the movement between government and and the think tank sector that's long been a feature of Washington. So, for example, one of my predecessors, Alan Gingell, left 
the executive director post and became the head of the Office of National Assessments, the leading intelligence assessments agency in the Australian government. So, so I think it's changing in interesting ways. So, Michael, you've written a lot and thought a lot about China over the course of the last several years, and you've traveled there yeah. frequently. I think your assessment of Xi Jinping, I, I share that. But in your personal interactions, yeah. uh, both visiting and engaging Chinese interlocutors, do you see other things that are changing along with the nature of the leader of China? I, I think that what's consistent is the way that Chinese interlocutors make their arguments, the way they keep coming back to to the point, and you really need to be clear and consistent with them. But what I am also seeing, I do see the tightening of Chinese society, the way the Communist Party is playing a greater and greater role. I see friends of mine, Chinese scholars, Chinese academics, who say that, you know, they'll say to me, it's like the cultural revolution in faculty meetings now. So to see that tightening and hardening of Chinese society, I really struggle with. But, you know, when we were talking about Australian policy on China, I remembered an anecdote that sort of summed up the Australian dilemma when it came to China. A few years ago, I gave some, a series of public lectures called the Boyer Lectures on Australia's place in the world. And these lectures are given once a year by a public intellectual on some topic. And the, the national broadcaster asked me to give these on, on Australia's place in the world. And I said, well, look, I'd like to give one of those lectures overseas and I'd like to give it in China. And there was a bit of controversy about this. And people said, shouldn't you give this in Washington or Delhi or whatever? And I said, but China is changing our external circumstances faster than any other country. So let's give one of these lectures from China yeah, looking at Australia. Mm -hmm. And you were very kind at the time, Kurt, and you said, look, I think, it's a, I think it's a good idea to do it in China. Anyway, when I landed in China, I gave the speech at, uh, at Beidar. And when I landed in China, I, had, I, I turned on my phone and I had a couple of voicemails. I had a voicemail from a leading hawk in the Australian intelligence agencies. He said, Michael, I think this is fantastic that you're giving this, this speech in China. You can give the, the communists some tough, tough messages. And because mm -hmm. you're not a government representative, they'll see that it's not just the government guys that, mm -hmm. you know, that, 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 that there's a broad hardening of Australian policy on China. You can send them some tough signals. I said, okay, fine. I moved on to the next message. The next message was from a leading Australian diplomat. And that person said, Michael, it's, it's great that you're in China. You're going to have a great time. But can I just ask you one thing? Please don't screw up the Australia-China relationship this week. <laughs> and I thought if David Ignatius had his tale of two dinners, yeah. I had my tale of two voicemails because that's the dilemma for Australia. How do, you, how do you push back where you need to push back against China? How do you push your interests and stand up for yourself and try to influence Chinese behaviour where you can, but at the same time protect the enormous equities you have with the China relationship? That's the challenge I think we're all facing. Michael, you've given us this incredible overview of not only US, Australia, but what Australia is facing. Just in, in closing, you know, as you look ahead, you know, in the next uh, three to five years, you thought politics might get a bit more stable. Just where do you see the Australian economy? Where do you see things headed? You, are you optimistic about where things are moving? I think there are reasons to be optimistic, but we do have a tendency sometimes in Australia to be a bit complacent and to accept what the world gives us and to sort of talk ourselves down a bit and say, well, we don't really have much control over that and that's sort of up to the big boys. I mean, we pretend, we say we're going to mediate between the United States and China, but just as often we sort of go with the flow. And I don't think actually that 
that's acceptable now because mm. I think the tensions that are arising, the way that Asia is changing, um, the way that so many Asian countries are looking to preserve their space, the great difficulty of living beside this huge civilizational culture with so many people, so much power uh, that's run ultimately by a an authoritarian political party. Th these are complicated things. And then on the other side of the equation, you've got the United States, the leader of the free world that is itself questioning its role in the world. And so I'm optimistic, but I want to see an Australia that is out there, that is, that is playing a part, that is seeking to influence our allies, seeking to influence our, our partners. And actually, the Prime Minister got it right on this. He gave a, a public speech recently and he talked about Australian agency and he said, we have to express our agency. And I, I, I agree with him on that point. I want to see a larger approach to the world, a larger Australia. It's interesting. One of the things that Rich and I have talked a lot about is that, ironically, a lot of discussion about the role of strategy in the United States and China. But I would argue that this is a period in which the middle powers, yeah. India, Japan, uh, Australia, can really make their mark on global politics. Michael, you've been really terrific to join us today. We really appreciate taking uh, time off from your great whirlwind tour here to the United States and Washington, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, Michael, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you.